I'm Dr. Jack West from City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org under the news heading. So I'm here now with Dr. Wally Curran, who is the executive director of the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University. And uh, he also is the current chair of the NRG Oncology Group, one of the cooperative groups, and uh, previously was the head of uh, the Radiation Therapy Oncology Group uh, that that preceded it. So thanks so much for joining. Now, uh, you chair the Department of Radiation Oncology at Emory, and uh, they just opened uh, a new proton therapy facility, I understand, so congrats on that. Thank you. Uh, now, there's been some controversy about proton therapy. Uh, the marketing has been sometimes ahead of the data, but uh, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on kind of where things are with proton therapy. Obviously, you wouldn't have started a proton therapy facility at Emory if you didn't think it's ready for prime time, but you know, you also preside over a group that has radiation oncologists from all over. So, right. is it a standard of care at this point? Is it something that uh, uh, we're waiting to kind of grow into the data? Where is it? So uh, proton therapy is, is a very exciting and dynamic field. Uh, what uh, There's no question that the so-called brag peak of proton beams provides an opportunity to give a higher dose of radiation to the target area uh, compared to the adjacent tissues. And one principle of good surgery or good radiation or any intervention is to focus the intervention on the problem or tumor area and reduce the side effects to normal tissues and normal function. Proton therapy clearly has a greater ability to do that. Some of the new tools in the new proton centers, which include the ability to have imaging, high quality imaging in the treatment rooms, which include the ability to vary the intensity of the proton beam, so-called intensity modulated proton therapy, to use what's called uh, pencil beam scanning, really provide an opportunity to give even a better treatment than a proton therapy plan or treatment from a decade ago. Uh, We do need to do prospective research in proton therapy. We do need to compare it against the best non-proton therapy. And the Energy Oncology Group, which I have the Uh, great uh, pleasure of co-leading. We now have uh, three, soon to be five, randomized trials open looking at the question of proton therapy versus uh, non-proton therapy. The reality is proton therapy also is a continuum of uh, improving radiation. And whether we like it or not, the regulatory guidelines of the Food and Drug Administration are different for devices than pharmaceuticals. They provide an opportunity for uh, uh, therapies to be given for devices, uh, diagnostic devices like MR and CT to be modified and move forward. The political and economic issue is that these proton centers are just more expensive than an upgrade in an MRI unit or a CT unit. If it was just an incremental cost increase, then there'd be little controversy. Uh, There is a responsibility for those of us who have proton centers 
to study prospectively the benefit or lack thereof. And we're committed to that uh, both in trials we do within energy oncology as well as uh, trials we do with partner institutions. So uh, right now, we've had this before. I mean, there weren't lots of prospective randomized trials of CTs for diagnostic purposes. And you know, some of the current standards in radiation oncology were just taken as the de facto standard of care because they were the best technology available. Yeah. I guess the it's always a, just an issue when it's a it's a, a, a significant change in cost and also access. I think yeah. that, you know, how how are we going to deliver uh, proton therapy if it's only available at a limited subset of places and there's a lot of patients who are not going to be within a, a day's drive of proton therapy? Yeah, and some of the uh, initial costs of the so-called single-room proton centers are going to expand access. There are probably a dozen or so centers uh, going up elsewhere in the country. I don't have answers to all of those. Uh, I'm committed to leading and participating in trials that clarify the relative benefit. If we see a real and significant benefit in care, then uh, I think that will drive greater availability. If we see marginal or debatable benefit, then uh, the drive to increase access will be less strong. There's no question that for certain pediatric tumors, uh, proton therapy is superior. We, uh, we basically referred a large cohort of children with cancer from Atlanta to other centers in the Southeast for the last 10 years. We know that uh, the opportunity for those families not to have to leave uh, a metropolitan area while they have a sick child will be a great advantage to the future families with that unfortunate problem. Uh, we don't know at this point what the relative benefit of proton beam therapy will be for lung cancer patients. For right, or, or other common ones yeah. like, like you know, we see And we see the potential, and we, we also know that the only way we will tap into the potential is have enough centers who are disciplined enough to do the trials. In the setting of a cooperative group trial, right. you do uh, central reviews of the, of the radiation plans, correct? correct. Yeah. Do you see a lot of disparity of you know of, of the quality? Is that a concern because uh, you know you you hang a bag of immunotherapy or chemotherapy? It's basically the same wherever you are. But radiation, I would say, like surgery, is quite skill dependent, and yeah. you know you have the ability to kind of review things after the fact. What are you seeing, and is it a concern of the you know potential disparity of what's what's available? What, what we have seen, and this applies to proton beam therapy, but also intensity modulated radiation, uh, which really became common in trials, uh, albeit without randomized trials for most diseases uh, over the last decade and a half. What we see is having upfront credentialing of a center, its physicians and its physicists, uh, improves the quality of care for both protocol and non-protocol patients. Uh, requiring the discipline to actually uh, do a phantom treatment and have that reviewed, we found uh, really improves the quality. So uh, our experience is if you don't have that detailed uh, pre-trial accreditation of the center, be it proton beam or non-proton, 
then there is a huge quality gap. If that's done and a center takes the time to do it, we actually see fairly good compliance with the care. Now, it really varies with the disease. Uh, we find there's greater variation or risk of variation in the management of head and neck cancer and lung cancer patients than brain tumors or prostate cancer. Uh, we find this greater variation in brachytherapy procedures, mm -hmm. the radioactive uh, treatments. But what we really find is that uh, uh, centers that do the pre-credentialing uh, work perform well. As an example, uh, to enroll on an energy proton therapy trial, a center has to be open and operational for six months and then do the credentialing. So we've been open since December at Emory. We were planning the credentialing in May and June and hope to be able to uh, open our trials in July. They want to make sure that our processes are reasonable, mm -hmm. but they will send us what we refer to as uh, dosimetric phantoms. These are uh, phantoms that might be shaped like a thorax, like a pelvis, like a brain. They have dosimeters all around and they say, do a plan where the dose to the target has to be X, the dose to the normal tissue has to be below Y, and then they analyze them and see if we do it. Mm -hmm. When we started that type of dosimetric phantom work for IMRT roughly 15 years ago, we found uh, a high failure rate even among the so-called top centers in the nation. So there is a learning curve, uh, but that learning doesn't take place unless you have the discipline to do right. that. It's like reading about golf or something. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. Does radiation oncology lend itself to kind of remote planning or treatment? Is it possible to reach or help the, the underserved areas by providing plans that can be executed somewhere else and have you know, radiation oncologists just kind of remotely available via telemedicine or a once in a while visit? Yeah, um, that, that's being looked at and being explored. Uh, our experience is um, what works on the telemedicine form better is if you have good radiation oncologists at the site but uh, the, the dosimetry and the physics plans are done remotely. If you don't have the strong physician care at the site, uh, you risk uh, having a problem with the execution of it. And, and you obviously need good and reliable equipment and good and reliable technical staff to do the equipment. Yeah, but this is, you know, this is an issue, a uh, global issue. There is uh, one major university that has developed that remote physics dosimetry treatment planning um, service that it offers around the country and around the globe. And, and so I think that's been helpful. You know, we're uh, working now with uh, a uh, developing country on trying to get them into the linear accelerator uh, mode uh, because most of their care to date has been in uh, uh, cobalt therapy units. Uh, but there's so many factors, including training of staff, uh, elect uh, steady state electricity, and all kinds of things that make it challenging. Yeah, and when I think about the day-to-day -day -day management of patients on combined modality therapy, right. they really need the oversight of somebody who's got some experience Correct. with this. It's, yeah. it's not something you can just phone in, so to yeah. speak. I mean, I think that there's no doubt that um, having uh, quality assurance and remote physics is a model that exists around the country, but you still need trained technical staff on the site. Let's turn to uh, 
the concept of radiation for oligometastatic disease, the Gomez trial, which looked at consolidation radiation or far less commonly surgery to up to three sites of residual uh, metastatic disease in patients with uh, oligometastatic lung cancer after initial systemic therapy was stopped early with just under 50 patients but that was because of a profound improvement in progression-free survival seen in the recipients of the consolidation therapy. And at ASTRO this past fall in 2018, Dr. Gomez presented updated results that showed a survival benefit, though in a small study. And uh, so where's this leave us in your estimation in terms of, you know, is this a standard of care? Is this, obviously there's other studies being done, but I think there's still some skepticism about uh, how far to take this. Yeah, um, it's really pretty fascinating. So if you just look at it uh, as uh, prolonging survival but not increasing the cure rate, it's, it's, a, it's a real but incremental step. And knowing that in general, uh, solid tumors with metastatic disease tend to recur most commonly at the sites of bulky disease, it does make sense that you could push either survival or PFS curves to the right with that kind of intervention. And uh, probably the hesitancy in the past at doing it is it might interfere, it might uh, interfere with the delivery of drugs and it might uh, lead to unwarranted toxicity. With, a, with SBRT techniques, toxicity can be lowered but not eliminated. And people also realize the limitations of some of the systemic drugs in prolonging survival. So it's exciting. Uh, every one of us wants more studies. We have sort of multiple histology disease site studies in the same space from Canada and the team up there. And they're all trending in the same direction and that is there's a benefit. And now that we're in the whole area of uh, immune system priming and the possibility that radiation contributes to that. Uh, we don't know how much that was a part of this, even without immuno-oncology agents, but when you add immuno-oncology agents, it's, it's a whole nother space. So exciting, uh, somewhat undisciplined uh, data, uh, but we, I think we need some trials. I would, I would say the, the acceptance of it and the integration into day-to-day -day practice is not there yet. Yeah. Uh, I think anecdotally patients receive this as part of off-study care. I don't think, uh, I would not argue for universal adoption either until we really understand who, what patients are most likely to benefit. As you mentioned, there are studies that are in planning or in execution to follow up on this, but they vary a lot in what is called oligometastatic. I think, you know, with some going going to uh, five or even up to 10 metastases, in your estimation, what is, what's oligometastatic these days? Is there, is the limit as high as five or 10 or is the different biology yeah. when you're talking about two I or three? Totally agree and also uh, agree that right now there are different definitions. Uh, I think up to three or up to five are the most common definitions. Mm -hmm. But uh, other people have said perhaps we should look at cubic centimeters of disease as another alternative. So uh, I guess the, we're probably going to learn from a subset analysis of these more inclusive studies and see whether 
the results uh, that look favorable are limited to those with just uh, one to three metastases rather than five or more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You brought up the issue of immunotherapy and the interaction with radiation. That's certainly exciting, and some preclinical data supports that, even some emerging uh, analyses uh, uh, that are at least retrospective. Uh, do you envision that the role of radiation is going to fundamentally change even for metastatic disease as a as a complement to radiation therapy I'm sorry as a complement to immunotherapy I think potentially yes um, you know the indications for treating uh, metastatic cancer with radiation up till now have been uh, to palliate symptoms of pain pressure uh, airway obstruction uh, to prevent a problem, a bad problem from getting worse, to treat brain metastases really regardless of symptoms. Uh, if you think that the principles we're talking about are successfully executed in more phase three trials, then you really think about it as uh, another tool in the global management of patients with metastatic cancer. And uh, like like another systemic drug just needs to be used discreetly, carefully, and with, uh, you know, with, with the right uh, approach. Impressive that a basic tool that we've had for 100 years is, exactly. uh, is still being found to be used in different ways. That's yeah, great. Yeah, I agree. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Okay, great. Thanks, Jack. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more lung cancer considered podcasts. And please like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues. This is Dr. Jack West. Until next time.